We as a church have been uh, just starting a new series, which I personally I have found very exciting. Normally we work our way through books of the Bible, but we're doing a little bit different. We feel God's led us to do a series called Church, the Hope of the World. I've been in Amsterdam for the last three days with the Pays, and it's just been fantastic at a conference. And basically, you could have summarised what they were saying with incredible passion and zeal, that it was their saying, we want to establish a church here in Amsterdam that touches the nations. And, it is, and they are just, again and again and again, we had a guy called Gary Clark there, who leads a, ch- a church called Hillsong in London. They've mushroomed to over 7,000 in just a few years. He was saying, church is the hope of the world. We had a guy fly over from Atlanta with his wife, who started a church and it's grown to over 2,000. And they were saying, church is the hope of the world. And again and again and again, like a heartbeat throughout the weekend, it was like, guys, we're here to change your mindset. You might be a Christian and you think you like church. We're here to show you that that isn't good enough. Church is everything. Church is the centerpiece of God's creation. It's the centerpiece of what he died for. It is the agent that God wants to use to extend his kingdom. Amen? That's what I've been exposed to, so I'm excited about it. And so today, we're going to be looking at one particular aspect of that. A few couple of weeks ago, we looked at, Tim Wilson looked at the fruitful church, looking at the fruit of the Spirit. Before that, I looked at the uh, Jesus' church, which is uh, Jesus is the head of the body. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at the, one of the most subjects which is most close to my heart, the praying church, the prayerful church. So if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 17... And um, most, uh, most people, irrespective of they're a Christian or an atheist or whatever, apparently in this world, if you were to ask them, most people would say at some point in their life they would pray. So be it in a crisis moment when they're going to crash their car or something fantastic happens, maybe they've had a child or whatever. Most people, whether they actually believe in God or not, would say that at some point in their life they've prayed. But the amazing and somewhat troubling reality is, is that although this is true, for most of us who are Christians and who are honest, we would say that when it comes to prayer, sometimes it can be a little bit tricky. I mean, I remember when I was uh, just a Christian and I did like a year's training course thing called FYP, where you spend a year working for the church and you receive theological training. And a guy came in who did the, the session on prayer and I turned open his note and in like font 72 or something, just ridiculously massive font. It just said, prayer is hard. And I was just like, okay, great, nice way to start the day. And and there's kind of truth in that. But my desire today is that when we leave this place, we realize that prayer doesn't have to be hard. The reality is one of the most difficult things I think about prayer can just be knowing really kind of in essence what it's all about. When when I was a young Christian, I, I at times would just, my head would spin in terms of what, prayer should be. There'd be times coming to this church where everyone would go, okay, let's all pray out together. And so I'd be there trying to pray my little prayer, and there'd be someone next to me going berserk, praying their head off, and then someone on my left praying again, and then I'd be, I'd be listening to them. I'd be like, oh, that's a good prayer. Oh, no, 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 I've got to be praying myself. And, and there'd be this, it's practically called Korean style. So, so I'd be kind of learning how to pray. But then other times, you'd have times where there's just sort of silence and stillness. And I think, well, is this what prayer is really meant to be about. And then there'll be other times where there, there, there'd, be, there'd just be a kind of a, a, an absolute machine gun of, of praying, like absolutely intercessory and powerful and, and just almost like a kind of, uh, like a machine gun. And, and, and at times I look at people like that and think, well, is that what praying is about? And so the reality of what I'm trying to just say is, is that when we talk about prayer, we all probably would say that actually we at times struggle with it. 
And we'd also probably say the reality is, is that what on earth really is it? What does it really mean to pray? What, when we talk about prayer, if it can mean all of those things and so many more, what on earth, in essence, does it mean? And what I, as I prayed about this, and as I saw God, I just felt God just lay two, I believe, keys on our heart today. And that when you really boil it down, when you really take away the packaging, when you take away your own personality type, which will influence how you pray, prayer, in essence, I think is two things. It's number one, adoration, and number two, activation. It's number one, the means by which we learn to communicate our deepest passions to our God and learn to hear about his love for us. But it's also, secondly, the place where there is an incredible, explosive ability to change destinies. It is both a place where we adore God, but it is also a place where we see destinies change. And, and depending on what a person you're like, you'll probably tend to see prayer through, through one of those two ways. If you're someone like who's a super activist, like my wife Josie, she always wants to get stuff done. And her natural tendency will be to see prayer in terms of, will God do this, do this, do this, do this. That's good, but it's only half the story. Someone like me, I'm a bit lazy. And I would be someone who just can get caught up in just loving God. And that's great. But as we're going to learn today, it's only half the story. Because the reality is God wants us in the arena of prayer to learn both adoration and activation. And the more encouraging thing than even the fact that I think this is true is that we're going to see here that it's true in the Bible. And we're going to see, which is most far more important. And we're going to learn here today that through the life of King David, the greatest king who ever lived in Israel, who, who led that mighty nation of God, we're going to see, even in this one passage, these two major components just sort of booming out, really, really obvious in what we see them. So we're going to read from verse 16, and we're going to read up to verse 25. And the context that we find this, look out now for these two major compartments, an adoring prayer life, and then an activating prayer life. The context that we're about to see is that David has just received a download from heaven of incredible promises from God. All right? He's just, we're going to find out in a minute, he's just literally just had one of those, must be the most highest moments of his life, where God has just gone, download, and there's just this incredible torrent of promises that God has given him. And what we're about to find out now is that in the context of that ringing in his ears, this is how King David prays. Verse 16. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and said, Who the heck am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And you know what? This was a small thing in your eyes, O God. For you've also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And you've shown me future generations. Oh, Lord God. What more can David say to you for honouring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. There is none like you, O Lord. And there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making for himself a name for great and awesome things, in driving out nations before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. And you made your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. That's the adoration. And now, gear change into activation. And now, and now, O Lord, let your word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house be established forever and do as you have spoken. And your name will be established and magnified forever, saying, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the God of Israel is Israel's God. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, my God, have revealed to your servant that you will build a house for him, and therefore your servant has found courage to pray before you. Father, we thank you for your grace upon us this morning already. We thank you that you are here by your Spirit. But Spirit of God, we, right now, we open our hearts to you afresh. We say, would you come and teach us? Would you come and inform our hearts and our minds, Lord God, about what it is to be a people who understand, who love, who cherish, who adore prayer. God, I just do not accept that prayer has to be hard. I just don't accept it, Lord. I know that the hearts of these people would say the same. We do not accept it, Lord. We say, God, we believe, Lord God, that you have a destiny for us as a church that we are walking into, Lord God, where we adore prayer because it's the most intimate place. We're with you, hearing your voice, asking you to change this city. God, we just say now, would you break open our hearts? Would you destroy strongholds? Would you, I pray, Lord God, change small thinking? Spirit of God, would you go into the hearts and minds of everybody here today, into my heart, into my mind, and would you teach us, would you inform us, would you impart into our very spirits, Lord God, something of your your revelation, Lord Jesus, of what it is to be a people who love to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see here in the first part of the, se- of the section, David's prayer life is all about adoration. But then we see in verse 23 where he goes, and now, gear change into activation. We're just going to have a, spend a few minutes looking at those two aspects of prayer. So number one, adoration. So to state the obvious, we see here in King David a man who, it's like before he even thinks about asking God for a single thing, he is just potty. He's, he's in love. He is, what words? He's just absolutely in awe of God. You know, these words, he says, who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? I mean, I don't know literally how King David said it, but Mike, whenever I read that, it's almost like there's a flow there. You know, like when you, you speak in tongues, some of you are speaking tongues, it's like a heavenly language God gives you. And often when you use it, you're just like, and there's just this, I don't know what the heck I'm saying really, but it's just good. And God, I love you. You're so kind. And there's this waterfall of, of grace being poured out, out of your mouth towards God. And I think this is kind of like that. There's that feel to it. It's almost poetic. Who am I, God? I think he would have almost whispered it. Almost like a lover on a pillow. How am I, God, that you're treating me like this? That you've downloaded these promises. God, you're amazing. And so here he is, a man full of adoration. Are we full of adoration? Are we? 
Are we a people who when we read that we go, yeah, I feel just like that. I feel exactly like King David. I am so right now in my life full of adoration. When I pray, people would look at me and they go, oh, he just adores a God. She just adores God. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we like King David in this? And we have to ask ourselves the question, how did he get to be like that? That's the real question, isn't it? Because all of us would read that and go, wow, that's amazing. I, I know there's a, there's a guy there who, who leads in prayer. How do we become like that? And now this is the amazing thing. Okay, don't miss this. When we look at what's just happened to lead him to be into a place of adoration, the incredible thing is the things that have led him to have a heart of adoration to God have actually been quite painful. That's the incredible logic of God's word. We, although there's promises that God has given him, as we're about to see, what's actually happened in order to make him be someone flowing in adoration is that his heart has been humbled. That's the key. His heart has been humbled. He's, in a sense, he's, he's got smaller in his thinking so that God has got bigger in his mind. And we see three quick ways that his heart has been humbled. We see, first of all, there's been a removal of something precious. There's been a removal of something precious. You see here, what we have to understand is that actually the whole thing that this has started off is that David has said to God, God, I'm going to build you a temple. But what God has said to him, the first thing he says to him is this, guess what? Although you're the greatest king that's ever ruled Israel, although you're an absolute legend, the reality is you are not going to be the one that builds my temple. Now, I know some of us Christians will know this and be like, yeah, yeah, we know Tom. But the, the shock and the shame that David would have felt when God spoke these words to him would have been overwhelming. You see, any scholar will tell you that in the Middle East, in that part of 2,000 years ago, the way as a king or queen that you showed your prowess and your power was by building a whopping great temple. That was one of the key ways you did it, was that you showed. I mean, it's it's the same nowadays, isn't it? If you're a celebrity, you have the biggest house, you have the biggest car, you have the biggest helicopter. You demonstrate your bigness through having big things around you. And King David, who's the greatest king ever, has just received the news from God at the beginning of chapter 17, where God says to him, it is not you, in verse 4, who will build me a house. It's going to be your son. So it's a little bit like, say, David Cameron. He gets into power and he turns up for his first day as prime minister and they've got a bit of news for him. David, I'm afraid, although you're going to be prime minister, um, you can't actually, you know, you you can't live in 10 Downing Street, I'm afraid. But we have got a fantastic little two-bedroom apartment for you in Tower Hamlets, which you're going to love. It's going to be great. And we haven't actually got the Jaguar that you normally have, but we do have a fantastic Vespa scooter for you to get from your appointments. Is that okay? Is that all right, Mr. Prime Minister? It's that kind of level of shame. It's like, uh, um, uh, what? What are you talking about? I am the leader of this nation, and yet God is saying to him, yes, you are, <clears throat> but the thing that you've desired, this thing that is so precious to you, I'm knocking it out. Not out of love, but out of my sovereign wisdom. And what we have to understand here, and this is so important to us, God does the same with us. The removal of something precious in our lives is so often the painful and yet the true path to having a heart that's humbled and being someone who adores God. 
But this is the key thing. How we react to it is everything. How we react when the thing that we want so much, God says, actually, maybe I'm not going to give it to you right now. How we react to that is everything. Because for David, he went down the path of humility. But what can easily happen is we go down the path of a hard heart. There's that saying, isn't there? Is it the same sun that melts the wax that hardens the clay? And it's exactly the same thing. What are we going to be like as a people? We want to be a people who, no matter what's going on in our life, adore God in our prayer life. But the way that David got there was having a heart that was humbled, first of all, through the removal of something precious. It wasn't just that God was being really nice to him, and therefore he thought, great, I'll be in a good mood and praise God. He's just had probably the most devastating news that could have ever happened to him. And so, how would we react? Would we be going, hallelujah God, thank you, that's wonderful. No, no, we would probably be going down the other path of like, you rotten, I never believed in you anyway. Or something stupid like that. We would easily get into self-pity and just thinking, if my God's not going to bless me, then maybe he's not real or he's just nasty. Not realising that it's, the, it's one of the, the ways that our Father in Heaven works. Because he wants our hearts. He doesn't want us and our own little agendas making us conditional. We can't, we can't have conditional adoration. It, it can't be on condition of us having good lives. Because testing and trials and tough things are totally inevitable. Uh, it was so funny. Me and Rich and Kath yesterday, I won't go into the story now, but we tried to get a ferry back from Dunkirk. It went a little bit wrong. And as we sat there, it was so funny. We'd had just the most nightmare few hours ever. They can tell you about it one day. And Rich just said, the last few years, there's been so many things that have gone wrong. He said, we've got some mates in Australia, and they came over at the same time, and they're multimillionaires now. And he just said, everything goes wrong. And it was just like, I could just see the hand of God in it. I mean, we, it's true in some ways, but God often does it, because like with King David, he wants us to have hearts that melt like wax. And actually go, God, you are sovereign, and actually I bow to you. You know, the reality is, is that we as a church are living with staggering promises. You know, in the last few couple of years, we've had the promise from God through prophets like Julian and Keith Hazel saying, you're going to be a church of a thousand. I'm giving you a building. I'm giving you multiple sites. I'm going to make you a beacon of glory and truth. Not just for this city, for the entire region. I'm making you strong in the arts. I'm going to make you a teaching center. I'm going to make you a place, a place of glory that people come to. And we can think, wow, fantastic. Finally, the thing that, that thing I've always wanted to do, I'm definitely going to get to do it. And the reality is, you may do, I may do, but it's up to God. And we have to say, Lord, Lord, if you remove something or postpone something precious, I want it to lead me into a path of humility and adoration. I don't want to become hard-hearted and just say, well, I won't like you then, God. Because if you do that, you'll be there until you learn to have your heart softened. That's the reality. God's got a lot of time. You know, he's got a lot of time on his hands and he wants us to learn quickly. So first of all, removal of something, of pre- something precious. But then secondly, we see the second path to humility and a life of adoration is the reminder of something past. These painful things God keeps doing to, to King David to make him a good prayer. You see, in verse 7, King David has said to him, he said, do you know what? You're not going to build a house for me, my friend. Actually, I took you from being a shepherd, from being in the pasture, from hanging around with the sheep. And it was I who picked you to become prince over Israel. And what he does here, he says basically, okay, buster, 
you've come to me and said you're going to build a nice temple for me. The reality is, is that every single fiber of your being from start to finish completely has depended on me. And he deliberately says to him, I took you. He, he casts his mind back. He reminds him of the past to when he first got selected. Now, when we think of the life of David, he was the youngest brother, wasn't he? He wasn't a warrior. He was just like a kind of hippie dude playing on his guitar in the, in the, in the, uh, in the fields. He wasn't like the you know, alpha male, his older brothers who were like, yes, I will lead and defeat Goliath. He was just a bit of a kind of, you know, I won't say Ollie Knight. He'll just, you know, he's just like me, just so... <laughs> Just lay back, kind of, you know, and God goes, yes, I'll lead you to go and kill the 20-foot giant and to lead the people of Israel. It's just ridiculous. You know, King David, sorry, Ollie, you're a mighty man of God, brother. Just receive that now. But I'm not a pastor. I'm a pioneer. But it's just, keep saying that. But the reality is, it's just, he reminds him of the past. He says, Remember where you come from. Now, King David is the king of Israel at this point. Okay, King, he's in a position of power. Okay, Wealthy. He could easily be deluded like we could be deluded that somehow when we first became a Christian is we haven't thought about it. But what God is saying here is the second key to having a heart that's humbled and being someone who adores God is remembering consciously how you became a Christian. It's remembering the fact that just like King David was the youngest and he, he wasn't a warrior, he wasn't particularly impressive, that's like a picture, it's like a type of exactly what happened with all of us. In the New Testament it says not many of you were of noble birth or, or, or clever. And that's, that's very true. I, I mean, it's so true. is that we were just normal people when God first came to us. And the reality is, is this isn't God being mean to him, and this is so important, is that when you have a revelation of where you've come from, it actually humbles you afresh. You know, when I think about our Sunday night prayer meetings, the prayer I just want to hear expressed in different ways, more than anything, again and again and again, is God, thank you for saving me. Thank you that once I was lost, and it may have been 50 years ago, but it's still fresh in my memory. Because, and the reason is, is because I remember the time when I was without you. And I remember the time when I was just out in the fields playing my guitar, spiritually speaking, in the darkness. And you came, you picked me up. It was nothing to do with my intellect. It was nothing to do with me choosing you. You chose me. You came to me. And what that does is it, it pops the bubble that we can get into of thinking we are independent. We can kind of think, you know, most of us are fairly wealthy, we've got fairly good lives. We can think we're kind of basically, how much do we need God? And when he does that, like with King David, he pops that bubble, we go, oh my goodness. I mean, for me, I had 20 years without God. And so it's blimming clear in my I remember the hopelessness. If you're, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to appeal to you with all my heart. God is real. <laughs> and Jesus is the answer. He is the way and the truth and the life. And he, he yearns. For you to connect with him. He, he yearns for the community that you were designed to have with God to be in existence. I would love to talk to you afterwards if you're not a Christian. I would love you to give your life to God here today. But anyway, God's saying here, he's saying here, he gives him a revelation. A revelation of his dependence on God. And so we, we find therefore that David, far from being someone whose heart has grown hardened, it's grown humbler through realising that he is someone who actually is dependent on God. Next week, here's the notice, next week 
we are going to be having our second love offering gift day for our building. Amen? Can I hear a woo? Woo. You may say, a building? We haven't got a building. Yes, we have. God's got it. He just hasn't given it to us yet. We, God's got a building for us, and we absolutely believe that. And, you see, we're going to be giving our hearts out both next week, and then if you're not around next week, the week after, because we believe that God is giving us, without a doubt, a, 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 a faith for a building. We believe that God is whispering to us and promising us actually, that this is what we are to go for. Now, what I want to say is this, is the reason we give is partly because as we give, our hearts follow. And as we give, actually, we give ourselves to the resourcing of a wonderful facilitate that would, a facility that would facilitate the entire region, that would be a, a beacon of the people of God, where people come to know Jesus. But the other th- reason that we give is because as we give, we are reminded of our dependence. As we give, you know, many of us will have a bit of savings, we'll have a reasonable income, we might have a bit of a pension. And that's good, and that's not a bad thing. But the danger with it is that we can learn to feel independent and learn to feel actually we're secure in that. So as we come next week and the week after to give, the reason we give money at all, in part, is because as we do it, we say, that feels scary. God, I've given that amount of money, and I can't logically really afford to, but I know you give me faith for it, so I'm doing it, and I know you're going to come through for me. And what's happened there? Dependence on God has come again. A conscious realization that every single day we are dependent on him has been restored. So King David here was someone who, because he'd been reminded of the past and where he'd come from, he was someone who was humble and loved God passionately. But what we see thirdly here... It's the third key that David shows us about a life of adoration is that we also see a revelation of something present. Not just his past, not just where he came from, not just how he'd become a Christian, as it were, but also he was reminded there was a revelation that we see here in Scripture of his present standing and the present reality of who he was. We see here in verse 18... David says, and what more can David say to you for honouring your servant? And this is the phrase, for you know your servant. You know him. You know me. And what he's saying there is, God, you've given me these amazing promises and you're showing me outrageous love. And yet you know all my weaknesses. You know that my heart sins. You know that at times I get it wrong. You know your servant. And yet, you still pour out blessing upon me. And what he's, he's showing us here is a third step in terms of actually a life of adoration through the humbling of the heart is not just through looking back to the past and where we became, how we became Christians, but also that here and now in the reality of our lives, there are things in our life that are sinful. There are things in our life that God doesn't like. But you know what? The reason that God wants us to see them as well as so that we can move through them, it's because as that happens, like King David, we find adoration flows afresh in our hearts. I remember several years ago, coming in on a Sunday morning, and I had sinned. I had chosen consciously a couple of days before to sin. And I came in and I felt wretched. Anyone here identify with that ever in their life? Thank you. You come in and you think, I feel foul. I'm here and it's just horrible. And I, we came in and we went, someone, I think it was Steve Dunn, went to that song, 
by Paul Oakley. Uh, you know that song? I won't sing it. But he says, he says, your love surrounds me. Your grace surrounds me. Or something like that. Uh, and he talks about the Father's love. And I just broke. Because it wasn't that I hadn't sinned. It wasn't that God was saying, oh, it's fine. It's all right. It wasn't fine. I had sinned. And we will keep sinning. But when we have a revelation of that sin, it's not to crush us. It's to actually release us. Because we see afresh. God takes off the delusion that we live with sometimes. That we're doing all right. That we're pretty good Christians. And he listens and says, do you know what? That pride in your heart, it's disgusting. (laughs) that, That selfish ambition that you've got, it's revolting in my sight. But I... I adore you. But it's revolting. But I adore you. And you just come to that place where actually, rather than feeling crushed, you just think, God, I'm so useless and you're so glorious. Thank you that in your strength alone I've become more than a conqueror. It's in your strength alone that I can advance against the troop and scale a wall. It's in your grace alone that I can do all things through him who gives me the strength. He changes our mindset. And that's what happened with David. Because he says this phrase, you know your servant. We know that, that only sometime later, David was going to commit adultery. And then he was going to have the woman's husband effectively uh, executed. I mean, these are like major, major sins. Probably no one here has necessarily done either of those. And yet, the reality is, is that even someone like this, was used as the greatest king of Israel. And David knew it. And actually, that place of revelation of his own sin, of his own weakness, of his own frailty, it didn't condemn him. It actually made him a worshipper that I want to be like. Do you want to be like that? You see, the reality is, you know, we are, theologically, we are saints before God. But we are pragmatically sometimes sinners. Not all the time, sometimes we will sin. And that will keep happening until the day we die. But when we get it right, when when that happens and God reveals it to us, we've got to understand, like with King David, it's not to bring us down, it's to expand our hearts and our minds to a God who is still totally, totally committed to us. And I want to say here, and this is, I really felt God put this on my heart, there are people here, and you've been a Christian as long as you can remember, And you just struggle to feel real joy in God. You just at times think, why don't I feel more like what we're talking about? Why is it that there isn't in me more of a sense of joy in God? And I felt God want to say that, you know, if you've never had a life where you really went against God consciously, that actually God wants to show you that even if you were nice, you still deserve judgment. And what I'm saying here is this. You can never know full adoration in God and full heart-rending joy in God and appreciation and adoration of Him until you first or so realize what it was we were all facing. It's just not possible. You will never be someone who is white-hot passionate for God unless you've also faced the reality that all of us were objects of wrath. And you may have never been the most horrendous person ever at all. You may have been someone who actually, compared with other people, you were pretty nice. I think I was a pretty nice guy before I became a Christian. 
I never murdered anyone or beat anyone up. Or I was a pretty nice guy. But before God, a holy and perfect God, I was deserving hell. I was. And I don't say that to bring us down. It because as we realize that, and we feel the force of that, and then we realize that God has saved us from it. There is no thing in our life that we can ever face which, won't, which will be able to, to combat the joy that comes from that. When we realize what it is that we've been saved from, actually there will be an adoration in our hearts that will mean that we will be the mo- most robust, adoring people ever. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you must be made more miserable before you can, become, you can know true Christian joy. Indeed, the real trouble with the miserable Christian is that he has never been truly made miserable because of conviction of sin. He has bypassed the essential preliminary to joy. He has been assuming something that he has no right to. And actually, it's more likely to affect those who have been brought up in a Christian home and family than those who have always been, if they've been taking the places of worship. Do you understand what I'm saying there? It's actually this strange thing that why God works is actually by showing us the reality of our own at times, wickedness. Actually, what we do is we then go, and you are so in contrast to that God. And it's all about you, and it's all about your glory. And guess what? We found ourselves suddenly praising him. We still feel pretty rubbish in, in the terms of our own abilities, but it doesn't matter, because we're still going to heaven, and God still loves us, and he's still committed to us. He was committed to an adulterous murderer. He was committed to him. He made him the greatest king of the, of the entire of that place. So how much more committed is he to us? It's, it's, it's the truth. It's, it's, it's glorious. So we must be a people who, like King David, have our hearts humbled. He may remove something that's precious, or at least postpone it. We need to go down the path of humility. He may, he may remind us of the past. He wants us to be a people who dwell upon how we became Christians, because as we do that, it earths us again into the fact that he was the one who chose us and picked us up out of the pit. But also, we find thirdly, that actually... He gives us revelation of the present, of the fact that in our own hearts, actually there's times where we need to see the less than perfect side of us. Because as we do that, our joy in God is made complete. But then what we find, and with this we finish, is then after this wonderful, wonderful display of adoration, we find David then clicks into a different gear. And he then displays to us the other side of prayer that is just so incredibly important. We find here in verse 23. Thank you. I don't know what that was about. In verse 23. The the angels. They love it. We find in verse 23. Oh, city church. What a church. Strangest church in all the world. We find in verse 23. Welcome to the nut house. We find in verse 23. <laughs> we find in 23. He goes, enough adoring, as it were, with all respect. No, no, he goes, okay, now there's something in him that goes, now let's activate what God has promised. And we see here in verse 23, it says, And now, O Lord, let the word that you have spoken concerning your servant, concerning his house, be established forever and do as you have spoken. Can you say do as you have spoken? One, two, three. Do as you have spoken. One more time. One, two, three. Do as you have spoken. 
So suddenly, King David, as it were, takes off his adorational hat, you know, like the music, loving God, and now he goes, right now, there's, a, there's some nations to take. I love God with all my heart, but at the overflow of the worship and the adoration, we've got to see God's kingdom come, amen? And we just see suddenly the line of, jo- 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 the line of Judah <laughs> roar through King David. We just see him now goes, and it's so true, that there's, it's totally biblical, that there comes a point, there comes a point where it's so biblical for God's church to rise up and go, God, do as you have promised. Say it again. Do as you have promised. Do it. Lord God, we, we don't just want to be a people who kind of treat your promises like ornaments. We can do that, can't we? We can be like, oh, he's giving us promises. Wonderful. Up there, and there's that one up there, and there's that one up there. And we spend our Christian life basically going, have you seen my promises? They're really nice. They're great. They're just here. And the years go by, and the years go by. It doesn't seem to bother us that they're still there. And actually, it's almost like, if you imagine it's like a mirror, the, the promises are like a mirror. We're like, oh, isn't that a glorious mirror? Isn't that a wonderful promise? And the mirror is pointing to the landscape behind us. It's pointing to God's fulfillment behind us. But we're just standing there like Wally's going, wow, I'm so satisfied with this mirror of promises. And God's saying, turn the heck around. I want to fulfill them. I want to actually make your church to be a thousand people. Amen? I want to actually do that. I am absolutely frustrated. I'm frustrated that you're able to meet in this little hall. I'm very frustrated because my kingdom purposes are so much bigger than your little brains and your hearts and my brain. I'm so much bigger than, than a, a small school hall. I want this place to, this city, I want a city on a hill. I want a place which people can't deny. I want to see a people so ablaze with the glory of God that no one can ignore it. I want to see my, my spirit flooding you guys, I want to see my spirit coming. Like when Ezekiel saw the temple and there was this, this glorious flooding, ever deepening, ever widening river of his purposes coming out. And God says that. And he says, I've given you the promises. Brilliant. Here, we've got them in this book and also prophetic promises from God. Excellent. Then we've got into the adoration. Wonderful. Thank you, God. I'm not worthy. I love you. I praise you. And then, like King David, we have to see activation. Amen. We, we, we have to see activation because ultimately, as a church, we have to be a people who, who say, God, I, I've seen about what you're doing and, and you've promised it and, and now you've got to do it. You've got to do it, God. And what we see here, and this is so important for us, is that King David's prayers are basically two things. And both of the two things he prays for are the exact two things that God has said he's going to do anyway. He says, Lord God... Bring glory to your name. And he says, number two, build your house. Bring glory to your name, God, and build your house. And what are the two things that God's promised he's going to do? Bring glory to his name and build his house. And you're thinking, well, David, why are you saying to God, do what you're going to do anyway? Why are you asking God to do what he said he's going to do? And that is the mystery of prayer is that what we do, and never more are we more effective in terms of our praying, when we don't just pray a random load of kind of... Oh, beautiful. When we're just praying crazy random prayers. But when we align ourselves with what God has spoken, where God says, you know what? My kingdom and my government shall know no end. The gate of hell will not prevail. I'm going to build my church and I'm going to rise something up that will be the, the chief of the mountains, Isaiah 4, and every single nation is going to stream to it. There are thousands of promises of God about him building his church to be the chief mountain, to be the most center of glory, to be the very thing that governments come to for advice. That's what he's promised. 
And so what do we do? We pray for other things? No way. We say, you've promised it. And so like King David, activate now. Activate that which you have promised. And we do it over again and again and again. That's why two weeks ago when we had prayer and fasting, we said, Lord God, basically you've spoken these things and we're going to pray in line with them. We're not just going to pray my own agenda thing. We're going to pray what you've spoken. Another quick notice. Our prayer meetings from now on are staying at St. Stephen's and they're staying at 6 o'clock because we need longer to pray. And it's a bigger room. It's not really big enough anyway, but we're going to be there for a season until we come here. But we need to, we, as we get busier, busier as a church, as God starts to grow us all the time, the very thing we must never, ever, ever, ever do is stop praying or, or do less praying because we're too busy. We have to pray more than ever before because what we see here with King David is when he prays prayers of activation, what we see is immediate and glorious and breathtaking fulfillment. Can I have the next slide, please, Yong? Thank you. Thank you, Andy Chef, for preparing this slide. Now, can everyone see that, roughly? Yeah. Kind of. It's basically a map of, of, uh, of uh, Israel. And you see that big red J in the middle? Yeah? Like the bullseye? That's Jerusalem. That's the center of God's nation. Now, King David has been praying, God, you've been promising to do these amazing things. Now, let it happen. Okay? Prayers of activation in line with God's will. And then we see Bosch. Young? There! Oh, wow! Suddenly the Philistines, a mighty superpower, which are always threatening them, David knocks them out. He, God gives him victory over them. He starts to fulfill his promises. And then next button, please. Bosh! The Moabites! Again, immediately God knocks them out. Why? Because he promised he was going to do it, bring glory to his name and establish his house. David prayed, Lord God, let it happen, and then it starts to happen. And then Bosh! Next button. Up in the north! Up in Damascus, and then again, another part of Damascus. That whole area, suddenly David sees complete victory in. And then Bosch, Edomites, another massive superpower. On paper, far, far stronger than Israel. And David just demolishes them. He just knocks them out. And then Bosch, another area. I don't know what it is, but it doesn't matter. (laughs) The point is made. Hold that up there. What we're seeing is, and this is so powerful. When we, in the Old Testament, what God does all the time in terms of physical, historical, and military success, okay, don't, don't miss this, guys, it is a foreshadowing of something that would happen in a spiritual realm. And this is just oh, amazing. So when David gave military success, and those kingdoms did not know what hit them, when God's armies came out, in the same way, God's new kingdom, kingdom through us, nothing to do with like swords and being military... We are an army of God. And in the same way, God's now, who's promised kingdom advance, is going to be advancing his kingdom all the way around us. And so as we, as the church here, we can genuinely expect, as God has promised, expansion and his glory to come, and person after person after person after person, to know Jesus Christ. Do you know what? God's army is on the move. His, his advancing kingdom is, is, is happening in a way that far outstrips even this impressive thing that God did two and a half thousand years ago. God is doing something so much more amazing. And so you see now when we say, God, fulfill your advance here. As you've spoken about expansion and people becoming Christians, in essence we're saying, God, just as you gave complete victory to King David over those nations, Lord God, invade those hearts. These now represent people. People that God wants to bring into his kingdom. Do you get it? Do you understand what I'm saying? God's saying here, I want to now in flood person after person with my kingdom. I want you just to shut your eyes right now. 
I want you to imagine three people that you know, perhaps their neighbours, perhaps their friends, work colleagues in the area, perhaps their mums or dads you know at the school gates, perhaps their fellow students, whatever, guys you know at school. And I want you to think of their faces and I want you to, I want you in your mind's eye to draw close to them right now. I want you to notice the shape of their mouth and the shape of their nose and their face, the colour of their eyes. And God wants you to know that he is after their souls. And he wants you today to receive faith that there will be a day, perhaps through you, where they hear the gospel and God's victory enters into their heart and they don't know what's hit them. They will not know what's hit them. I believe God wants to just give us faith now. There's 300 people here in our church. Just imagine those three people each, each receive the gospel of Jesus. Just imagine what God wants to do through us. Okay, you can open your eyes. See, the reality is, guys, is what I'm trying to say is this, is that prayer works. <laughs> is that prayer activates our destiny in God. Is, is, you know, I, I've taken over leading this church from, from Barry in the last few weeks, and God has been speaking to me at a personal level so clearly that I am to lay a foundation in my life and in your life that as a church that can be so busy is that we never allow the enemy to deceive us into forgetting about prayer. And that's what it is. It's as serious as that. It's deception. If we allow ourselves to forget this truth, that when we pray, things change. When we actually bother to pray, the entire destiny of this city can be changed. Do you believe that? As we actually say, Lord God, do what you have spoken of, Things change. Things gloriously change. I was so amazed just a few weeks ago to hear about Grace Butler. I think, how old is Grace? Seven? Seven. She just on a... Seven, yeah. Six? Six. She, she just prayed. Uh, she said, God, show me yourself. Uh, she prayed. Just, God, show me yourself. Jesus, I believe in you. I want to see you. She went to school middle of assembly, she has a vision of a huge man standing there with flowing white hair and eyes of fire. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Book of Revelation. That's Jesus. She comes home, calls a cucumber, tells Julianne. Julianne, she says, what did you think of this man? And you know what she said? She said, I'm just amazed at how kind he seemed. Man, huge man with flowing white hair and burning eyes of fire, who's kind. Man, when we pray, things change. A friend of mine who leads a, student, uh, he leads a youth work just said to me, it's a throwaway comment, he said, you know, I used to pray so much more. In the first year of taking over of the youth work, I saw 30 people get saved. And now I don't pray so much, and it's weird, I don't, I don't see so much happen. Yonggi Cho, who leads the biggest church in the world, eight 
150,000 people. When someone asked him, Yongi, what is your strategy? What is your strategic key to success? He looked rather confused and said, strategy? He said, we pray and we obey. We pray and we obey. That's it. And you know what? I don't despise strategy. God-given strategy is a good thing. But fundamentally, you know, building mighty churches that display God's glory and power are never about logic. They're never about striving. They're never about doing things right and correct. Because there's so many massive churches that bring glory to God that are also different. The thing is, God wants a praying people. He wants a people who, who acknowledge their dependence and say, God, activate that which you have spoken. Activate it, Lord God. Because the reality is, when we pray, it not only achieves more than we could do if we didn't pray, it actually achieves the impossible. It literally does things that no amount of skill or human effort could ever achieve. There's, I've got permission to, to, to give this illustration. There's a guy in the church whose marriage for seven years has been as near to non-existent. They've been living separately. His wife's not a Christian. And um, it's just, it was just dead as a dodo. He really wanted to reconcile, but, but she wasn't interested. And it's just been this ongoing nightmare. And on Easter Sunday, thinking of the resurrection of God, he just got this surge of faith here in this hall and said, God, you're a big God. I'm not going to be satisfied with this. And he just stopped to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray. And a fire came on him to pray and to pray and to pray and to pray. And just doing battle with satanic forces in the unseen world. said, God, I'm not content to see this go down the tube. God, bring an impossible thing to pass. Four days later, out of the blue, they never hardly ever talk to each other. She rings him up. She says, I don't know what's going on. But I just think we've got to somehow try and make a go of this. It's not, they're, they're not totally back together and all sorted. It's the beginning steps. But that, I cannot express to you what a miracle that is. It's a profound miracle. And it's because he prayed. I believe that with all my heart. I believe it's because he just said, God, I've got a mustard seed of faith. That's all it is. But I'm going to breathe on it as best I can, God. And you've got to do the rest. Does that sound good? Should we stand? Can we have the worship band up, guys? You know, David says something here. This is the last thing I just want to say. David says, doesn't he, right at the end of this passage, he says, I have found courage to pray. Doesn't he? Amen? Amen. Amen. He says, I've found courage. Guys, for us to be a church that starts to pray and to see God infect this city and this region with the glory of God to a new degree, it's going to take courage. It's going to take courage because actually... As we see God outpouring his power upon us, it's going to mean for all of us in this room, from the oldest to the youngest, that again and again we give ourselves to the local church to a new degree. We are. We, we can't do it without it. It's going to need a more and more level of commitment to it. It's going to be something that we need courage to do. It's going to take courage because the reality is, as we move into God's purposes, there will be opposition. You know what? After that week of prayer and fasting, there was so... I just... There was just a weird backlash. It wasn't weird. It was predictable, actually. As we basically said, we are going to push into all that God's got for us. Do you know what? I just sensed it in person after person in my own life. Just weird apathy, a strange feeling of, oh, I just don't feel very clear about my life, strange relationship tensions, you name it, illnesses. And it's just like the enemy is so obvious. He's so predictable. He's so predictable. He wants to chisel away. And I think in a weird way, guys, we should be encouraged 
that we are actually a threat to the enemy because we have a vision that God's given us that is big and that wants to see this entire city touched by the power of God. So why don't you stretch out your hands now? Right now, I believe God's power wants to come on us. And Lord, I just right now, if you just close your eyes, I just feel God wants to just release some people here. Even as I've been preaching, I just feel the Spirit of God wants to come. He's been, he's been highlighting things in people's lives. And right now, I feel God just wants to open up new levels of faith for prayer. Even now, I believe there's people here who have given up on it in actual reality. And God today has been speaking to you like injecting adrenaline into your heart. And he's been saying, this is for you. This is for you. This is for you. This is for you to walk into your destiny. Right now, Spirit of God, flood this place, I pray. Right now, Lord, thank you for your grace. And we say, Spirit of God, we want to live lives that count. And I just pray now, Lord God, for those people here today, and they know that you have been just, just warming the coals afresh on their heart. If that's you, I'd love to pray for you. If you just want to come straight down the front, don't worry about anyone looking around. Just come down. We've got a ministry team here. We'd love to pray for you. Come right down. This is your time just to receive from God. There's, there's far more. There's far more. I believe it. Come on down. We'd love to pray for you. Wonderful. Come down. That's great. If your ministry team could just start to move around. Go on, guy. Go on, girl. If you just come forward a little bit, that's wonderful. I just feel God right now is just going to break some things open. Whoa! Hallelujah. We have just a few girls over here. Wonderful. Thank you. If you're not being prayed for, just start to reach out your hands now, okay? Start just reach out your hands and your mind and your heart for these guys. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we just say now. God will say to you, Joe Warnock, arise! Arise! Your light is coming.